This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Once again, welcome to the program. We seem to be living through a moment in history where there's a certain anti-authoritarian current swirling around our political discourse and in the way we engage with everything that's happening out there. And it's not like there's no reason that that should be happening. If authority is a little on the nose these days, it's at least in part because a lot of people in authority have been underperforming and you don't have to look very far to find examples of our leaders dropping the ball pretty badly in recent times. But like it or not, leadership is still very important. We have so many problems that just can't be solved by loose collective action. Climate change, pandemics, corruption, political extremism, racial injustice, civil rights, they all demand coordinated action and that requires leadership. So that's all pretty self-evident. But what is it about leadership that's philosophically interesting? And is it possible that philosophy might have something to offer in our current debates around leadership? Well, tackling these questions this week is Jacqueline Bokes. She's lecturer in the School of Management and Marketing at Curtin University in Perth, and she's been doing a lot of very interesting work on ethics and leadership. Jacqueline Bokes is speaking with Adam Andreotta, and this program was produced in collaboration with the Australasian Association of Philosophy. A lot of my research is focused on really trying to make the case that I think leadership is very philosophically interesting and that philosophers really can and should have a lot to say about leadership and what makes good leadership. And I think what's interesting to notice is when we ask questions like what makes good leadership, what's bad leadership, um, often people ask was someone like Hitler a good leader? We're already doing philosophy. We're already making reflective, evaluative, normative claims often, and we're already making judgments and arguments which are philosophical in nature about the nature of leadership and the nature of good leadership. And look, I think we saw a lot of this um, certainly in Australia during the pandemic when we had a lot of public debate and discussion about the decisions that our leaders took. So in WA, for example, we had quite famously the borders were closed for a very long time. Um, In Victoria, there were some very long lockdowns. And we saw a lot of discussion around that, around whether Mark McGowan was showing good leadership, protecting people maybe by keeping the borders closed. On the other hand, we had claims that someone like um, Daniel Andrews in Victoria was known as Dictator Dan because there were people making claims that the lockdowns were really not the right way to handle the pandemic. So really, I think the answer to what's philosophically interesting about leadership is often when we're discussing leadership and the actions of leaders, we're already in ideological, philosophical territory with the claims that we're making. So say when some people, especially in Western Australia, criticised uh, McGowan, um, they might have said that uh, his actions compromise people's freedoms and those kinds of things. What they're really doing, you're saying, is making a philosophical point about what a leader should be doing. Um, and so I guess this raises a lot of questions about what the responsibilities of leaders actually are. Do they only apply to, say, the immediate? Do they have certain long-term um, kind of goals they have to kind of meet? And then a second question that's kind of raised, which I'd love you to speak about, is what actually makes a good leader? Yeah, I think that's a great question. In fact, I think there's multiple really good questions in there. I think they're really good examples of how we're already doing philosophy when we're asking exactly those kinds of questions. And I think it's interesting when we think about some of our popular culture, these questions of leadership, really of who should have power, who should be in charge, who we trust with power, what makes a good leader, are really the central questions around a lot of the popular culture in recent years. So things like Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, Black Panther movies, really long-running discussions and kind of meditations on 
who should be in charge, who's the worthy leader. And I also think practically that when we think about our politicians and our everyday leaders, our actual leaders, they can really come unstuck when they overlook the philosophical and the ideological commitments we do have in these spaces. So I think quite famously during the pandemic and at the start of the pandemic, we saw Scott Morrison overseas on holiday in Hawaii with his family while there were really terrible bushfires and natural disasters in Australia. And he really, I think, ran afoul of the belief that most of us have, which is that good leaders show up they're there. So Scott Morrison very famously said he doesn't hold a hose. There's no point him being there because he's not a firefighter. But the popular opinion, understandably, was that a good leader is there even if only to sympathise and empathise with people. We also saw cases like Boris Johnson during the COVID pandemic, who didn't abide by the rules that his own government had set, who very famously was having parties at Downing Street in contrast to images of someone like Queen Elizabeth II, who was sitting alone quite famously at her own husband's funeral. So I think people like Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison run afoul of those assumptions and ideological commitments we have um, in terms of what makes a good leader. So I think the bottom line is that really leadership is really one of the most common ways that we have to ascribe the power that some people have. We even use it to endorse it. Often we think of leadership as a kind of honorific. Um, it's an answer to this question of who should be in charge and why. And I think referring to power as leadership often really naturalises it, even gives it a kind of moral gloss. But philosophically, we need to, as philosophers and as critical thinkers, ask whether that gloss is legitimate or it might be kind of misleading. And one of the things I find fascinating about leadership and ethics and philosophical discussions around leadership is that whenever I'm discussing leadership with other philosophers, with, say, my students, undergraduate, postgraduate students, with people who are interested, one of the most common questions that comes up is the idea that, okay, so we think about leaders as effective, as maybe ethical. Was Hitler a good leader? Is a key question that often people have. And one of the things, as I say, I find fascinating about this is that this is one of the most common even dinner party conversation questions, but it's also in a way a foundational, if not the foundational philosophical question for leadership. If Hitler qualifies as a good leader, then that might commit us to certain things in terms of how positive, neutral, ethical we see leadership. If, on the other hand, we think that good leaders have to be ethical as well as effective, that would paradigmatically rule out someone like Hitler, but philosophically we need to make the case there. So all of these things I think are definitely worth interrogating and thinking about philosophically, um, partly because, as I mentioned, we're already doing philosophy and having ideological discussions when we're discussing these questions. And also because I think philosophy always has a contribution to make whenever we have maybe any confusion or any lack of clarity or lack of perfect agreement over concepts we share and their meanings. Now, you've mentioned uh, philosophers have often spoken about power uh, in combination with leadership. So I think that's an interesting connection. Um, can you walk us through what they've said about the connection between power and leadership there? Most of us will know that philosophers have had a lot to say and continue to have a lot to say about power, understandably. And I think a lot of these accounts can be adapted to shed light on leadership and what we think about these key questions for leadership. And when you think about philosophers thinking about power, talking about questions of power, obviously one of the main names that springs to mind will be Plato. So 3,000 years ago, Plato was thinking about a lot of these questions, really just not using the word leadership. Um, Plato very famously argued that power should only be used to pursue the good. So in some senses, there's a strong tie there between good leadership and good ethics. Um, on the other hand, someone like Machia Machiavelli certainly famously argues 
quite the opposite, taking the line of political realism. A lot of people attribute Machiavelli as the founder of political realism, who takes exactly the opposite view, saying that the only things that rulers should do um, is do whatever makes them most successful in keeping power. So even though neither of these really were talking about leadership or using the word leadership, if at all, um, I do think that that sheds a light on the different stances we can take towards leadership and power and ethics. So really, I think when I talk about adapting these accounts and thinking about leadership and philosophy, in the Republic, I think Plato raises almost all of the questions that we have in the current age about leadership and power. Um, we might not agree with all of his answers. For example, we definitely might not think that the philosopher King is a good idea, but he's asking questions in the context of power and leadership that we're still asking today. So he's asking in the Republic questions like, who should be in charge and why? What qualifies someone to be in charge? Do we want our rulers and leaders to know more than we do? Is there a kind of special knowledge that rulers and leaders should have? Famously, Plato also asked whether reluctant rulers are the best kind. So those of us that think we might want reluctant leaders or reluctant politicians in this day and age are good, in good company in terms of Plato asking the same question 3,000 years ago. And other questions like what are the ends that power should be used towards? Is democracy the best form of rule? Whether leaders and rulers should lie to us? And then the question of paternalism by rulers. Should rulers actually know what's best for us, even if that contradicts our own views of what's best for us? Interesting. So you've spoken about rulers and leaders, but I want to focus in on this term leadership because you mentioned that this is a relatively recent one. And I think certainly very popular now. We hear a lot of it spoken about in terms of sports leaders, uh, politicians as leaders, CEOs as leaders. Um, so how would you say that leadership uh, is usually defined if there's any commonalities there or how would you define it perhaps? Yeah, I think what's fascinating about that question is that we might assume, for example, that, okay, this is a really common term. We all talk a lot about leadership. There's often calls for good leadership. We might assume, therefore, that there are really crisp, clear, agreed definitions about leadership, what leadership is actually defined as. One thing I find really fascinating when it comes to the study of leadership is there really is no single agreed definition of leadership in the leadership literature. Certainly what there is is a kind of common shared history of the way people have started to think about leadership in the 20th century. So there are very famous core elements of the discourse. Often the contemporary discussion around leadership, certainly business leadership um, and political leadership, is taken to start with someone like Thomas Carlyle around the turn of the 20th century, who really focused on what's known as the great man theory. And this was the idea that there are some among us who are much more suited for leadership, who have character traits of leadership, and really the job of the rest of us is to identify those more well-equipped, more skilled people and to elevate them to the role of leaders and essentially arrange our affairs by doing what they tell us to do. As you can imagine, during the middle of the 20th century with much more egalitarian approaches, that approach became far less popular. So in the middle of the 20th century and into the 1970s, we have a focus on what's known as transformational leadership. So someone like James Burns focuses on someone like Martin Luther King Jr., um, Nelson Mandela, these kind of inspiring transformational leader figures who lead us towards moral progress, perhaps convince us of moral truths such as the need for civil rights and transform the way we act and transform society in that sense. And then most recently, the most common definitions of leadership, the most commonly accepted, are what we might think of as a kind of post-industrial workplace definition. So someone like Rost, says that after the industrial start of the 20th century and the kind of management top-down control approach, 
really what leadership is correctly understood is an influence relationship where we influence other people with a kind of soft power and convincing and empowering others rather than a top-down approach. And as I say, funnily enough, almost all of this series works on leadership start by acknowledging that there's no single shared definition of leadership. Often what they do is then contribute their own definition of leadership. And then they'll probably suggest that it's not really that important. We all kind of know what leadership is when we see it, and we don't have to agree on a definition to have serious, reflective conversations about it. And partly because I'm a philosopher, but also because I think a lot rides on this, I think that's a mistaken approach. I think so much depends on how we think about leadership and how we treat leadership and leaders. And leadership has so many ramifications in our lives. I think we do need to aim for a good and agreed definition if only, first of all, to make sure we're all taking, talking about the same thing, so we're not talking past each other when you and I talk about leadership. Otherwise, we can end up having some really confused disagreements. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, this is David Rutledge. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone, and we're in the company of Jacqueline Bokes, lecturer in the School of Management and Marketing at Curtin University in Perth. She's speaking with Adam Andriotta about leadership, one of those everyday concepts that turn out to be very philosophically interesting when you start to pull them apart. I think like when it comes to leadership, like perhaps many important things is really important elements of what's interesting about leadership and the philosophical discussions of leadership can at the same time drop out of the picture if we focus too much on the definition or aim for a too simplified definition. So I think like a lot of things, the more narrow our definition of leadership is, the more might drop out of this. So as I said, at the moment, certainly in the leadership literature, one of the most commonly accepted definitions of leadership is the one offered by Joseph Rost. And Joseph Ross says something quite minimal. He says, leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers who intend real changes that reflect their mutual purposes. So as you can see there, it talks about an influence relationship, a relationship between leaders and followers, and a focus on change that reflects mutual purposes. But it really doesn't tell us much about what those purposes are or what that relationship looks like. And one of the problems you can see is that if we return to that central question of what makes a good leader, do leaders have to be ethically good as well as effective? A really minimal account like Ross seems to give equal support for the idea of Donald Trump leading riots on January the 6th in the US Capitol as they do someone like Vincent Mugnari in Australia leading First Nations people to fight for land rights. Both of them to seem to fit the definition of leader, which might be problematic. And I think, as I say, we can ask philosophical questions about all of those hallmarks of that definition. So when Ross says that leadership is an influence relationship, not formal or hard power, I think analytical philosophy certainly has a strong role to play in terms of analysing that power. What are the the elements of that aspect of, of influence rather than formal power? Do we find that preferable or not? What do we have to say about that? Similarly, the question of the relationship between leaders and followers, what kind of relationship is it and what do we think about that? And then also, of course, our mutual purposes and shared goals. Do we think leadership is just focused on any mutual purposes or shared goals? Does it matter how we come to share those goals? So if you think back to the example before of Daniel Andrews in Victoria during the pandemic, 
One of the questions might be, for example, whether leaders in those situations prioritise freedom and opening borders versus health and protecting the, the vulnerable, how we come to share those mutual purposes and what the nature of the shared goals are really seems to matter. And I think, as I said, on a reductive definition of really anything, but definitely of leadership, too many of these important questions really drop out of the picture. So part of any philosophical discussion around leadership and around what it means to say something is good leadership, um, it's going to be a discussion of what needs to be included in a satisfactory, not too reductive definition of leadership. And anything we add there isn't going to be philosophically neutral and may not even be ethically neutral. But I do think these added details, so what a leader does and how the leader comes to convince the rest of us to embrace shared goals, I think they make clear some of these ethical questions for leadership. And I think they're key to answering that foundational philosophical question is, what makes a good leader? Was Hitler a good leader? Do leaders have to be ethical as well as just effective? But isn't it possible that we have just different senses here? So I might think a good leader is just someone that's effective. I might say, let's say Elon Musk um, as the CEO of Twitter. I might say, look, that just means he's a, a good leader. He's making a profit. But you might ha want leaders to be ethical as well as effective and then maybe have a different sense of what a leadership actually is. So we have different senses of leadership. I mean, is that a problem? Do we all have to agree? I have my definition of leadership. You have your definition. Different senses. What's the problem? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And often when I talk with my MBA students in our classes on leadership and ethics, sometimes that's the starting point. We might think, look, maybe Adam, you think about leadership one way, I think about it another way. Maybe it doesn't really matter. Maybe we can be kind of relativist about this. And that may be an interesting part, starting point, but I do think that consistency on how we're using these important terms really does matter. I think it matters internally for our own examined, well-considered views about leadership. We want our own views to be consistent um, and to have clarity and consistency there. But I also think it's really important when we're talking with each other about these important discussions, about important concepts such as leadership, that we all have good clarity and transparency around where each other stands on this. So Wittgenstein says quite famously that concepts are public property. We all share language and concepts. And if we're going to have important conversations, we need to um, have a level of transparency around our shared concepts. So that I think is the first kind of analytical point. And then I think empirically in terms of why this matters, I think how we treat our leaders, how much license or freedom we give them really might depend on our answers to whether we think leaders need to be ethical as well as effective and how we come to share the goals, what the relationship coming to these mutual purposes is. So a lot depends on that in our everyday lives for the good or for the bad. So I think we should really have clarity there. And I think even if we don't get consensus, even if we never come to perfect clarity and perfect agreement on how we use the term leadership, then it really does matter that we at least have clarity on how we're each using the term leadership. I might need to know what your commitments are when you say that someone was a good leader, and you might likewise want to know what my commitments are. The philosopher Karl Popper really famously made this case as well in suggesting that, look, there are practical reasons and a lot of recent examples of why we might want to reflect on what we mean by good leadership. So Popper very famously says that we should really understand that those in positions of power um, have a lot of power over the rest of us. They have a lot of ability to do good or bad. They don't have as, anywhere near as many constraints as the rest of us. So we should really focus on applying those constraints and really be much more open-eyed 
That's obviously a very different case from focusing on what makes a good leader. That's about being open-eyed about the fact that we might be over-optimistic and a little bit naive there and thinking our leaders are ethical as well as effective. But if I know that most of us are using the term leadership to mean just effective, then that might make Popper's line of argument a lot more attractive to us there. But just to return to a point that we discussed earlier about leaders and, say, effectiveness, suppose I say that, look, um, to be a leader is just to be effective. So let's take the Elon Musk as an example. You might ask the question, is Elon Musk a good leader of Twitter? And I might say, well, simple, let's work it out. Does he make a profit at Twitter? If he does, then he's a good leader. If he's making a loss and Twitter you know, falls to the ground, then he's not a good leader. So we can answer that question very easily. Um, imagine the same thing happening with, say, a cricket team. Um, is the Australian captain a good leader of the team? Uh, well, I look and see if he wins games or if he loses games, and that's he's a bad leader or a good leader, respectively. So why can't I just pick something like effectiveness and just say, our sports people are good leaders when they're effective. Uh, our politicians are maybe good leaders when they're effective. And our CEOs are good leaders when they're effective. What's wrong with the reducing leadership to just effectiveness like that? Yeah, I think that's that's a fantastic statement of the devil's advocate position. Um, absolutely. And I think, you know, that would be closer to the kind of experimental approach we talked about before to just say, look, when it comes to Elon Musk and Twitter, let's give it a year, let's give it two years, we'll treat it as a kind of experiment. And we'll see if maybe the shareholder value has gone up, profitability has gone up, subscribers have gone up, that kind of thing. But I think what's interesting about taking that approach is it's actually not always as clear as we might think it is what success is actually defined as. So, For someone who takes a shareholder value approach, something like Twitter, the success might be defined as shareholder value, as increasing profits. That might be very closely tied to subscriber base. And we might in that case say, well, we can run the experiment. In two years, we'll make a decision how successful Elon Musk has been. Um, I do think other things drop out of the picture there, right, in terms of the way in which Twitter's being used, um, whether there are, for example, um, hate speech or problematic statements being made on Twitter. That might be a harder case to make. I do think what's interesting about the other case you mentioned, which is, say, the Australian cricket team, does the captain of the cricket team lead the rest of the team to winning matches? What could be clearer than that as a definition of success? What's interesting here in Australia, at least, is that there's actually been a lot of a debate over the past few years about what is actually the definition of success for the Australian cricket team. So we've had a couple of famous cases where, um, for example, there was a mild cheating scandal with the Australian cricket team, um, the sandpaper cheating scandal. What's interesting is that I might think, look, paradigmatically, a sporting team is a simple case. Winning matches is the only definition of success. What was really interesting there, though, is that was not taken to be the case at the time. And very famously, the Board of Cricket Australia said that one of the reasons they were taking that so seriously is that they didn't want a culture that focused on winning at all costs. So there were some things that were considered to be not legitimate ways to win, perhaps more important than winning. So there are these philosophical, ideological discussions around what does success mean there? Even if we adopt Ross's definition, um, mutually agreed goals, it's not always obvious or clear what those goals are or should be. So there's philosophical discussion there. And so that's where we need to bring in philosophy to say, well, what are those extra goals? If it's not just success, what are the extra ones? And that's where philosophy is inserted and we can have discussions about what those actually are. I think that's right. And I think those are also unavoidably value-based discussions. So when you look at something like the cricket team, do we value fair play more than we value winning? When we look at someone like Adam Gilchrist, much further back in history in with the Australian cricket team, when we look at him deciding to walk when he knew he was out, but he hadn't been given out by the umpire, that's an evaluative philosophical ethical conversation. Should he have done that? Was the fair play more important than winning in that conversation? 
Okay, I want to return back to this ethical question because I think that's particularly interesting, especially in the context of that Hitler question that you raised before. Um, but what is it, could you maybe say, makes ethical leadership such a fundamental part of leadership? Why do we need to talk about ethics in such a strong kind of way? So just to kind of build on what we were talking about with the cricket case. First of all, I would say that a lot of ethical implications, there are a lot of ramifications that have strong ethical considerations that follow from how we answer the question of what makes a good leader. So if we follow a really minimalist approach and we just say leaders only have to be effective, then we're in effect handing a lot of moral license and a lot of power to individuals whose ethical credentials we have no knowledge of perhaps or certainly have not made any claim on. So a lot tends to turn on that, I think. If on the other hand that I think a good leader has to be ethical as well as effective, that might impact the kind of license, the kind of freedom that I give to someone in that leadership position, it might change my judgments of that. And certainly I think it will matter a lot how we come to share those goals. So how we come to be convinced of the rightness or the desirability of those shared goals that Rost refers to. I think this is especially the case because leaders have a position which gives them a lot more license and ability to affect the lives of the rest of us, um, certainly to affect the lives of the vulnerable more than others. And often we're not in a position to question or to seek redress when it comes to those decisions. And often leaders make a lot of decisions about power and that affect the rest of our lives from a position of a kind of opacity, right? We don't always have insight or constraint. And I think the fact that leaders need to be ethical, just as is incumbent on all of us to really be moral agents, it doesn't mean that there are easy answers or we're always going to agree on the ethics. There's still lots of discussions to be had once we agree on the fact that leaders should be ethical. Um, and I think that's particularly true of leadership, but it's also true of many other fields of endeavour. Um, and it at least takes us out of the realm of political realism, like someone like Machiavelli would endorse. What about some cases, I mean, something that comes to mind where, say, leaders might have to do unethical things, maybe even for ethical reasons, if that doesn't sound too kind of contradictory. Uh, sort of cases I'm thinking, um, such as nuclear bombs in Japan, World War II, uh, carpet bombing of Germany by the Allies, they were successful and effective, uh, the United States uh, and the Allies there, uh, but they seemingly had to do some unethical things. So how would you think about that? Michael Walter very famously writes in this area and he says there are some cases where being a leader, being someone in a position of power is ethically salient and so there are some things that leaders need to do such as potentially something like carpet bombing or dropping a nuclear bomb which is a grave moral sin but is necessary for ethical reasons and he has a fairly complex and some would say contradictory argument when it comes to that. It's worth noting that he doesn't think that dropping the nuclear bombs on Japan at the end of World War II would qualify as that. And he makes an ethical argument for why that wasn't necessary. So again, we're still within the bounds of the moral. It's really quite famously known as the dirty hands debate in leadership. And there is a live ethical debate there um, that does seek to do justice to the fact that leaders have particular powers and responsibilities, but it's very much an ethical debate. And that might be a case where we don't have to agree with what someone like Walter is saying, but he is very strongly saying that it's undeniable that there are strong ethical, difficult ethical claims that are made on leaders, that they're constraints that apply to good leaders. So as you can see, this is a kind of in-depth philosophical discussion. Again, as we said, you can't solve that kind of question just by doing an experiment. We can't legislate on that. We can't take a stipulative approach. We can only get through by taking serious philosophical discussions. So I think on all of those questions, and really to sum up, 
all of our answers and commitments here, they're always ethically loaded and ideological. We're always doing philosophy. We're always already doing ethics when we discuss all of these great questions that you are asking. It's always evaluative and complex when it comes to our answers. We're always already doing philosophy whenever we're having these conversations or talking about leadership with friends at a restaurant, at a dinner party, with a taxi driver, with philosophers. Whenever we're asking it and thinking about these questions, we're already doing philosophical discussions. Jacqueline Bokes, lecturer in the School of Management and Marketing at Curtin University in Perth. She was speaking there with Adam Andriotta, who's also at Curtin University, where he's a lecturer and researcher in philosophy. And this episode of The Philosopher's Zone was produced in collaboration with the Australasian Association of Philosophy. More info on The Philosopher's Zone website and many, many more episodes of The Philosopher's Zone on the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company this week. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.